Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. Today, it's our last show of the year, and we're going to talk about 2016, what's changing and what's staying the same. In our day-to-day lives, you know, it can get so busy, uh, especially with all the proliferation of uh, digital content and the world that we live in. Information is coming at us from every direction, and it can get so overwhelming. Uh, And that's why I'd like for us to take a moment at the end of the year here, 2016, to reflect on what's changing in, in our business world and what's staying the same. And how we can learn from those things as we make our choices about how to move into 2016. So we're wrapping up the first year of CEO Exclusive. I'm really excited about all that's happened in the first year and all the exciting things that we expect next year. And I thought I would take this opportunity to review the year um, and you know participate in this universal week of reflection and look over all the shows to see what's changing in the business world? And what are some of the things that we can count on to keep going in the same direction? It's been an amazing year with so many incredible guests. So I hope that you'll enjoy taking this walk back through these shows with me. To kick it off, let's look at what's staying the same. Number one, the economy is good. So take advantage of it. Linda Gabbard from Framework Initiatives joined me back in June and had this to say about the economy. Well, both Wayne and I work with a lot of um, smaller privately held companies. And what uh, I'm seeing, at least, is that all of a sudden, not really all of a sudden, but over the last year or so, two years, is we're back to the growth. Um, For so many years, it was how to survive. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden, everybody is really growing again, record month after record month new markets, hiring, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. exciting change going on. And what about you, Wayne? Are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, I I would agree with uh, Linda. And uh, after years of kind of stagnation, I won't say that everyone's growing fast, but many are, and there are many who wish they were. And uh, that's what we're here to talk about today, right? Is how how do you get that? How do you make that happen? But yeah, there is a lot of freeing up of... uh, 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 opportunity as well as optimism, which I think probably drives a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've been hearing a lot about that in, in the, the news and in the press. So what are the implications of the growing economy for, for businesses in your minds? Well, one of the things is, I mean, first of all, it's kind of fun again. Yeah. You know, so it's nice to be talking about growing pains mm-hmm. instead of, Uh, you know, how do I survive or how do I make it through this year and hold Mm -hmm. my team together? So that's a really great thing. And then the companies are having, they have to hire, you know, they're lots of times looking at new markets or new opportunities, new strategic directions. Um, Lots of people didn't survive the recession. So in lots of spaces, there's for the ones that did, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of opportunity. And I think that's what's really leading, you know, leading to the quick ramp up that many are seeing. Um, but then at the same time, there's growing pains that come along with that. So, What are some of the growing pains that you're seeing? Well, one thing is, and many of the CEOs I work with in Visage say this, is they're just a little bit out of shape. You know, when things were quiet for a long, 
you know, things were quiet for a long time. You got kind of used to being at a certain pace. And now the pace is ramped up to where they were before the crash or even above where they were the crash. But they're, they and their team are having to get used to that kind of pace again. In November, Reese of Nelson Mullins and Andy Mason of Peloton Capital Partners echoed Linda's statements, stressing that if you've been thinking about selling, now is the time to make the leap. Here's what they had to say. Overall, from a macro perspective, the M&A market continues to be exceptionally strong. It has been for many months. Um, We have a confluence of a lot of things going on in the market that are causing that, including kind of a a growing, stable economy, um, relatively low interest rate environment, and kind of a pent-up demand to acquire businesses. During the downturn, many strategic buyers as well as financial buyers retrenched, and the activity was not as high. Business owners were not necessarily ready to sell. And now that we're emerging from that time period, companies' performance is improving. There's a significantly higher demand to acquire businesses. Hmm. And, And do you have a sense of how long the window is likely or predicted to last? I know that nobody has a crystal ball. Well, as long as this economic environment continues, I don't see the demand slacking. Uh, Private equity firms continue to be well-funded. Strategic buyers continue to be very well-funded and aggressive. It all comes down to the economic environment and the interest rate environment. So I think as long as the economy is stable, it doesn't have to be growing exceptionally fast, but as long as it remains stable, and as long as interest rates remain low or as they rise, rise slowly, I think the M&A market will continue. Now, there's always the concern that everyone has that interest rates will uh, increase significantly next year and that could significantly impact the M&A environment. One thing I would add, uh, Sweeney, to that is that the lending environment is is back to where it was maybe in 2006, 2007. Uh, I was just talking to a valuation guy uh, the other evening and he said, you know, we're back at the happy times where it's now possible to borrow more money than you can ever pay back. <laughs> <laughs> is that really a happy time? It it uh, the the problem is is as a private equity guy reminded me, you still have to pay it back if mm-hmm. you want the deal to work. So so, but the point to that is is that there's a ton of cash out there, and uh, it does depend on the buyers having the discipline to not overpay. Uh, and as long as they have that discipline, it means that they can get the kind of money they want. And from a private equity standpoint, I mean, Andy can tell you, the more money you can borrow. At these kind of interest rates, the less equity you have to put in, the greater the return on the equity, and therefore the better right. the investment. Uh, so, yeah, which, yeah. which keeps it going. Another thing that's staying the same is you need a great team. I can't think of a guest on the show this year that didn't mention team as being one of the primary sources of their success. Tom O'Brien and James of Axion Biosystems joined me on CO Exclusive in August. Axion had great things to say about building a fantastic team in a challenging industry. Yeah, I, I would add one other thing. Really, our growth is based upon having a great team. And at the beginning, it's not, you know, you don't necessarily um, assemble all the right people. But I think we've learned how to um, attract very, very good people, excellent people, and how to determine during the interview process whether they'll be a good fit. And so we've assembled a phenomenal team. And I think that that's really the, the, really the fundamental reason we've grown and done so well and created this fantastic product. Yeah, I think it's really true. We couldn't have taken advantage of those opportunities with, that, are, that, that emerge from the market without the team that we have now. 
And so, I mean, at this point, that's almost cliche, right? Like, you know, you got to have a great team. Everybody knows you got to have a great team. So tell, talk to us a little bit about what that process looks like. Like, how do you go about picking the gems? Let me just say, so one is we learn through mistakes for, for, at the start. So we had, so we had, we had a kind of a profile of what didn't work. Um, and then now anybody who comes in for a job interview, no matter what level they're required to make a presentation about what they've done in the past or a particular problem with their PhD, what they did their thesis on, present it to, you know, eight or nine people in the company and then, uh, go through and de- defend what they've done and answer questions. And then they go through, you know, an interview process to see whether they're going to fit and how they're going to fit. So we, we try to identify people that are very objective focused. Yeah. Uh, so meaning that they're not very defensive. Uh, they're very focused on what you're trying to achieve. People are very bright and smart, but not, uh, they're not sensitive. So we're looking for an entire team of people that can communicate very directly and candidly about company problems, not take it personally, but also applying all their talents and all their intelligence towards helping to solve that problem. And that combination, you get a, 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 a large number of people in the company that, that possess both great deal of intelligence and that are also uh, very objective focused and not at all defensive. It's, it's fun. It's exciting how fast you can create and, and how, uh, how, how much the company can grow. Yeah. And uh, look, I make plenty of mistakes and I make decisions that may lead us in the wrong direction. So we need people with enough confidence to be able to say, Hey, Tom, this is just, this is the wrong thing. And here are the five reasons. And rather than sit back. So it's, we need a, a, a team that's, that understands that we all have the same objective. And if, if any one of us is taking us off that objective, they need to be, you, you need to understand why and have a debate about it. So that's another balance we're trying to strike between team members that will take direction, but also challenge at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so we now have a, a culture and a team that it feels very comfortable challenging, but we all get on the same page. It, it, one of our early lessons was learning that rowing in the wrong direction was actually better than rowing in two different directions because we could course correct and also have an environment that wasn't a lot of people that were just saying yes, but that would challenge and find that that harmony between all these different opposites has really created a fun team. Another thing that's saying the same strategy. Yep. You still need a good strategy. And with me as a strategist, I don't see this ever coming off the staying the same list. Although with our changing times, people are finding different ways to approach strategy. Still, with few exceptions, it's the companies that have a well thought out regularly updated plan that succeed time and time again. Here's what Scott Peters of WNA Limited and Keith McNulty of the Intersect Group had to say about it on CEO Exclusive back in May. The trend that I am looking at constantly and really for the past kind of 10 years is, you know, what's the right level of strategic planning uh, for a company? And it, it varies by company size, whether a large company or small company. But in particular, for the small to medium-sized company, what's what's the right type of strategic planning uh, and strategic management program because a lot of larger companies uh, tend to have more developed, more mature strategic planning functions and can really do more work in the uh, development of their their strategy. For a smaller company, it's a lot more of a resource-constrained environment. So there's a lot more challenges and you tend to be a lot more tactically focused. And so <clears throat> in my previous work with Scott uh, in, a, in a few of the kind of smaller to medium-sized companies, 
you know, one of the things that I was involved in doing was leading a strategic planning process. So there's no one size fits all, but there's a lot of principles that can apply to companies of various sizes. Um, <clears throat> you know, magazines like Fast Company or Wired will touch on, you know, strategic planning and, you know, classical strategic planning versus, you know, how do we do it in the 2015 right. era? <clears throat> and, and a lot of them tend to focus on more strategy work on the fly to make sure that the, the strat they call it strategy execution as opposed to strategy planning, typically. Um, the, the risk in that is that <clears throat> you know, strategy and tactics go hand in hand and both are, are critical. But if you tend to be more tactically focused, then you're not necessarily working on the right things. You're not necessarily prioritizing the work of the business in the right way. Mm -hmm. So, so this is an area uh, I've been spending a lot of time at. It's what I'm I'm doing some of that now. We're we're doing some strategic planning work for a small company, and um, it's 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 a very, really important topic, I think. So I I mean, of course, this is near and dear to my my heart because this is one of the things that that my company does for clients. How do you? I'm very interested to know to to know. One of the key complaints that I find, um, at least when I'm dealing with CEOs, when you're talking about doing strategic planning, is is the resource constraint. If I'm going to spend all this time and effort into a strategic planning exercise, that's time and effort I could be spending, or even dollars, right? I could be spending in lead generation or something that's going to have a d more direct impact on the bottom line. That's certainly a complaint that I hear either in their behavior because they won't do it, or you know, I hear that actually. Um, they actually voice that complaint. So how do you go about quantifying or justifying the value of the time that, that you get your clients to invest in the strategic planning process? Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> yeah, that's uh, why I have a radio show. Absolutely. <laughs> one, of the, I mean, one of the questions that applies to um, sort of when you're looking at any either initiative or new client relationship or new line of business whether you're a small company or a large company, is what does the business case look like? And so certainly as you, if you can weave sort of a, a, a quantified measurement of uh, you know, what the expected output is uh, before you do it, that's great. And, and the larger companies have more resources and they can do that kind of development work and quantify the, the use of, of that time. So in a smaller company where you only have maybe a handful of people and as you say, you know, we're focused on lead generation and converting those leads into actual business. That's going to lead to dollars. Well, you don't necessarily that you as a business leader, you're either going to choose to be more strategic about how you're running your business or you're going to be more tactically focused. It's, it's, it's a challenge. There's no doubt. And I think every small business leader has that question, you know, whether they're aware of it or not or whether they're consciously dealing with it or not, it's there. You know, how much time do I spend on strategy or versus tactics? Because I, I want to chase that business over there. Um, I think that's going to grow my business. But maybe if I step back and I pull people out of their jobs for a day or two and run a more formal or traditional style strategic planning process, well, maybe we're all going to understand each other a little bit better. I'm going to understand what the rest of the team is thinking better. And, and maybe we're going to realize that this pool of leads over here is less uh, strategic, it's less important and it's less profitable to my business than those leads over there. So it is ultimately a state of mind. Next on the same list is it's all about relationships. We've all heard it. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And that's just timeless. It's not going anywhere. And it's still the case as we roll into 2016. Here's a clip from our show 
also in June with Greg Simon of Met- the Metro Atlanta Chamber and Baha Zidane and Todd Freiberger. Here's what they had to say about relationships. You know, at, at the Metro Atlanta Chamber, we're all about connecting businesses and creating commerce. And so whether you're a small business, uh, a startup technology company, a mid-market company, or one of the big brands that we have here, I think there's opportunities for businesses at all of those levels to, to partner, to do business with each other, and there's opportunities for potential uh, acquisitions as well. Uh, what we're seeing is this very positive ecosystem develop where companies in all the categories that I mentioned are regularly getting together and interacting, whether it's through a Metro Atlanta Chamber event, a Technology Association of Georgia event, a Georgia Tech event, or with all the emergence of various co-working spaces in the area, there are all these entities and organizations bringing people together to interact and and benefit from those interactions. Right. So, you know, as a CEO who may be listening to this, or maybe Baha or Todd, you want to comment on this, um, how does one get beyond, I mean, that sounds really great, Greg, beyond the networking, you show up to these events or you show up to a great event like the promote event or pitch event at, at the Metro Chamber and you bring your little stack of business cards and go and then, you know, how do you turn that into, you know, going from a seed idea to, you know, a thriving follow up, uh, follow up and keep keep those relationships. Um, I'll give you an example. We when we were in Valdosta uh, three years ago, I met David Hartnett in, in an event in Atlanta. We stayed in touch. We David uh, Hartnett is, a, is another person also, in the chamber. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, we stayed in touch. We followed up with each other. And uh, when the time was right, uh, we were able to do a lot of things that helped Azalea as a company to uh, process to move to Atlanta and, and position ourselves um, in a nice way. So I think uh, you, you, when we go to those events, um, I've met people in the PR side, from the marketing side. You always have to listen, learn, uh, and open your mind uh, to stay, listening in and, and seeing what, what they have to offer. And, of course, follow-up. Uh, that's a nice, simple recipe. <laughs> I, I think it's important to – it's not just about going to an event. It's about getting involved. And, you know, my involvement with the chamber on this mobility journey, it actually started with my prior company. It was a very large technology company based elsewhere. Um, I had actually reached out because we were looking at building an innovation center in Atlanta. And actually, we was introduced to Greg and other people through the chamber, as well as folks with Georgia Tech, because we were looking to see what resources might be available to us. Regrettably, you were living in Atlanta at the time. I was living in Atlanta at the time. And I was putting together a business case that said, hey, let's put this here because this is the right place and happened to be in the mobile sector. Now, regrettably, that technology company decided to put it in Palo Alto, um, where even though we were trying to hire up 300 people, they were only able to hire seven in the last three years. So uh, they chose poorly. And actually, it was after I left that firm and I was actually looking to do something in the same sector, I went back to, wow, um, you know, I was amazed at the resources that were available in Atlanta to be able to help to facilitate building a business here. And one of the first places I kind of reached to was the chamber and they graciously invited me to be part of this mobility movement. So it was kind of like, you know, put your money where your mouth is a little bit to be actively involved. And it, and that journey, you know, coterminous with building star mobile has been deeply rewarding beyond just the events, but to be, you know, deeply involved in all the resources available to us in terms of, you know, not only the networking, the people, the education processes that we have around this space, 
um, just some great resources that are there and, and getting actively involved, getting your hands dirty. It's just not about being a passive listener. I mean, I think the chamber is a living, breathing entity that is only what its membership creates out of it. And so I think it's incumbent for us to pick up that torch and help take advantage of those resources that are available to us. Next, millennials. Millennials are here and that's not going anywhere in 2016. And we also won't be changing them in 2016, folks. They will actually be changing the rest of the world. This digital generation is finding new ways to work, new ways to focus, new ways to connect. So Alex Membrillo of Cardinal Solutions and Allison Reinhardt of ALR Marketing Solutions joined me in August with great insight on how to work effectively with millennials and incorporate them into your company. And so you guys both work with, with the young staff. And I'm sure you have heard a lot about the, you know, millennials and working with millennials and how, um, you know, they're a different generation and their working styles. In fact, you know, you guys are millennials. <laughs> millennials. So talk to talk to our listeners a little bit about a little bit about that, and you know, share maybe some of your wisdom and war stories about um, you know working with millennials. Yeah, because um, I will tell you, most CEOs are not smiling and laughing the way Alex is <laughs> about yeah, it <laughs> because because they just don't know how to handle uh, working with millennials, and they think it's just this foreign group of species that they they uh, they just don't know how to interact with it, and. You know, grow, working with millennials is quite simple. They're young and they want to be part of everything. It's a different generation. They don't want to be told what to do and then work through their tenure at a place climbing the ladder. They want to be a part from day one of what the company's strategy is and vision and, and including them in all of the major decisions and helping them grow and giving them training. That's what they're all about. You do those things and everything else falls in line. Now, I think some of the CEOs you're, you've spoken to really feel like there might be entitlement and everybody wants 50 grand in the door. Yes, you know, that's part of it. But I actually think that's just, I think that's just, a, uh, you'll, you'd find the same proportion in any generation of people that would, would think that way right out of college, right? And so we, we deal with that as well. But the really savvy millennials understand that it takes time to grow into a position and you need experience. And as long as you give them that voice and how the company is run, everything goes really smoothly. Mm-hmm. And so how does your how does your hiring process work? How have you been able to um, reliably hire staff that perform so wonderfully? Yeah, so we get it wrong every now and then for sure. You know, we don't have any foolproof plan to hiring. But if you put enough safety measures in place and enough steps in the hiring process, we find that people will tend to weed them out over the course of meeting with several people and answering and going through assessments and stuff like that. But then the key is training and millennials are all about training, training. You have to provide them enough on the job training and outside training and conferences and mentorship and all of those things. And, and so if you come in with the right attitude, I can teach you how to do the job. Attitude really is what we're looking for in the beginning. Are you hungry? Do you really want to be in marketing? Okay. We can teach you everything else. I can't fix a bad attitude. And Sometimes those skate through our hiring process and, and those are the ones that, you know, you try to tweak the hiring process to, to filter out. But more often than not, you bring in someone that's really aggressive and um, really kind hearted and then you can teach them the job. It's, it's not, that's the easy part. So now let's shift over and talk about what we expect to be changing in 2016. Many more things are changing every day at a pace that our world and business environment has never seen before. The amount of data available makes decision-making 
faster, and in many cases, more challenging. This allows businesses to reach their audiences in a much more fragmented and more specific targeted way. The focus is going to be on narrow and deep rather than shallow and wide. Listen to this interview with Keith Finger of Ignite Revenue, who joined me last month to talk about ways to build revenue in this new world, including embracing agile marketing, where agile marketing is taking the approach to software and applying that in the marketing context. And how long do you, and I know this varies by tactic, but let's say, let's take the big tactics, like, you know, an email campaign or um, a social media campaign or whatever. How, do you, how long do you let these campaigns run before you know that they've, that they've either succe- succeeded or failed? Well, if you've got the right metrics, you can see pretty quickly what's working. I would say that there's a saying in, in, in lead generation and marketing that you want to fail fast. And so because you don't know exactly what's going to work better than something else, you always have to be multimodal. You have to go to market hitting the customer or prospect with several things, you know, not just social media, but uh, you might have outbound if you're a, a B2B company that sells an, an enterprise level product, which means something that takes a the, year. Yeah. Or even like, yeah, it could be a year to sell or, or 30 or you know, 60 or 90 days. And it's over $10,000. That's kind of the enterprise-ish you know, dividing line. Um, you might have outside sales, depending upon what you sell. There might be, it might all be inside sales, but you have to look at all the different things that you're doing, make sure they're working together and understand what's working, what's not working and why. And I'm a, I'm a big proponent of something called um, agile, agile marketing, which is, it, it takes its name from the agile software development. But what you do is you go on these, uh, let's say three or four week bursts of activity. And then you look at what's working, what's not working and why. And then you decide what are we going to do for the next three or four weeks? So, so you don't get down the road where it's six months or a year and you say, gosh, well, that didn't work. What are we going to do next year? You're always adjusting by doing things in short little bursts and then bringing in the stakeholders, talking about what worked, what didn't work, planning now for the next three or four weeks, going out and doing that versus just being on this tear for months and no one really looking at what's working or why or, or having a, a, a powwow about that. So if, you, if Agile is, you know, four weeks, my understanding is that for a lot of tactics, you need multiple months to actually know whether or not it's, gonna, it's working. Has that changed? No, it, and it really depends on, on what it is. But multiple months, it could, well, first of all, it could take multiple months to actually get something going. Mm-hmm. But chances are you're going to learn things as you go along Let's say you're going to do a, uh, an, an email campaign and you need to figure out what are the, what's the content. So you might talk to some customers and, uh, and get their ideas on things that you're thinking of doing. That might take a few weeks right there. So that, that's a few weeks. You come back, you create the content. You might show it to them. That's another few weeks. And you get that feedback. Then you're going to send it out. And you're going to see what's clicked on, what's not clicked on. You're going to see what clicks through to revenue, who actually buys. So all that, you're right. It takes the entire process. But once you put something out there, you should be able to tell within a month what people are responding to. If it's a hit or not. Yeah, yeah. Even, even on, on television now uh, or, or radio, everything that's done needs to have some sort of response mechanism, some way to, to gauge whether or not it's pulling people in, people are responding to it, it's turning into something. And that's part of the planning process is understand what are the metrics we need to think about so that we know 
whether we're getting the desired action out of that activity. So yes, the world is becoming more digital. Not only is data going online and moving faster, but relationships are increasingly moving in that direction as well. So yes, while relationships are not going anywhere, the way in which we embark on those relationships and deepen those relationships is changing. Our worlds are expanding as we are able to keep every contact we've made since elementary school at our fingertips. But managing all those contacts and managing all those relationships while being able to develop something meaningful with those people is becoming a new challenge. So here we're going to talk to or listen to Stone and Lee from Business Radio X, my station, who joined me in October to talk about how to manage those relationships and how internet radio and this platform, the one that I'm on, uh, can be a key to diving deeper into building relationships in this digital world. Well, what I think I've uh, seen particularly recently is that uh, the media is getting very fragmented. And I think people want to listen to what they want when they want. And I think that we're finding that uh, more traditional um, channels of media are having to take a little bit of a, a bit of a backseat to some of these other platforms like Internet radio. I see a, a great many people creating things on uh, video platforms, and people are paying attention. Now, they may not be reaching these mass quantities of listeners or viewers, but they are deciding who they want to serve, and they are reaching them very effectively, and it, uh, it, it can and does have a substantial impact on businesses if it's architected properly and executed properly. And uh, I, I think that's uh, that, that Lee and I, our organization and our clients have really benefited from that trend. I think it's only going to continue. And what about you, Lee? What are you seeing that you think are, is important for, for CEOs to know? I think that um, they have to look at their media amplification strategy a little differently than they had in the past. Before, there used to be just a handful of trade magazines or maybe national magazines or newspapers that they can just target and then try to uh, use to leverage their messaging. And today you can literally find a blogger, a podcaster, an internet radio show in any niche subject. And you really have to start in incorporating that as part of your media strategy. Yeah. And so one of the things that's been on the show, discourse that's been on the show quite a lot is, is this notion that when it comes to media and um, marketing of going um, narrow and deep, rather than shallow and wide. Right. And so as as you think about that for Business Radio X, you know, why do you why do you think this particular platform is working for you and what are you seeing in terms of the growth of your own platform? Well, I think that what resonates with our guests and our listeners are the fact that we're long form. So uh, people who are interested in the topic like to get a lot of the information from it. And when they find a show they like specifically they'll download everything. It's like Netflix. You know, you find that show you like on Netflix and you're uh, binge watching, you know, every episode that you can find. So uh, we've been kind of doing that since we were born. We've been doing that has been our philosophy since we started. And that's what that's proven to, to be valid. And it's um, spreading in a lot of different areas. Next on the changing list is data science. Data science is very, very hot. Because data can be so overwhelming with all its proliferation of digital content. Um, it's everywhere. We have to be able to find sophisticated ways of managing that data and using that data to create meaningful insights for driving our businesses. 
Josh Jones and Josh Cerulnik of StrategyWise joined me in October to discuss how even middle-level companies like you can actually harness the power of data science and use it to actually create meaning and meaningful ways of using data, data in your business. That's huge. And, and what other kinds of things are you finding that you're able to predict? Well, it's really uh, across the board. Uh, there's just amazing ways that companies are using this. Uh, I'll give you a quick story. Uh, you know, un- unfortunately, a lot of our clients prefer we don't talk about some of their internal projects. But I think one uh, a project, not that we did, but all your listeners will be um, familiar with, if you will, is is the way Netflix is using data. Uh, you know, it seems like everybody's getting on the Netflix these days. And a couple of years ago, they made a major shift in the way they do business. And uh, if you've ever used their online site, either for DVDs or online streaming, you know that you can go in there and actually rate uh, how much you like a movie. So give it three, four, or five stars. So a couple of years ago, Netflix decided to get into the content creation series. And this is about 2012, 2013. And when the House of Cards series was originally floated as a possibility, they actually were bidding against... Um, I believe it was HBO and AMC. And what they did is they looked at how many of their customers had rated highly the previous House of Cards series in the BBC. They then looked at how many people had rated David Fincher produced movies, uh, how many people liked Kevin Spacey movies. So they were able to capture all of that data, bring it together. And really for the first time, instead of saying how much are you likely to like some other movie in our catalog, they're able to predict how likely someone would be to like a movie that had never been seen before. So they made a $100, billion, $100 million bet to win the House of Cards series, and it was hugely successful. Uh, and as you've seen this year, just the amount of original content from Netflix is, is going to be over 500 hours. So Netflix has really changed the way um, they're doing business in terms of being just a content provider to a content creator. And how do you think about, or question should be, do you think about privacy concerns and you know, the whole not just big data, but big brother thing? Or, I mean, I think maybe some people have just given up on the concept of privacy altogether. Um, I mean, do you think about that at all? Absolutely. There's there's a huge uh, trade-off between privacy and convenience. And, uh, and it's not always a one-to-one relationship, but, uh, but essentially, um, as you're willing to trade off more of your privacy, you gain more convenience. And so, um, you know, in, in the case of Netflix, you're willing to give up a little bit of information about your preferences and your viewing habits for the convenience of being recommended uh, some new movie that you might like. Now, the challenging part about this, though, and, and I think this is you, you'll see this in the younger generations. They're more willing to sacrifice that privacy. And I think maybe they've grown up with just less of a notion of that privacy and and the idea that you're always owned, you're always connected, you're always um, in, you know, in the network, so to speak. But if you look at the vast amounts of data being created uh, from credit card transactions, uh, just across the board, telephone calls, text messages, social media engagements, more and more it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to um, have that privacy that they would like. Um, so with the example of Netflix, with all of these uh, you know, hundreds of millions of users worldwide, um, if they just know six reviews, if you just take randomized data and you look at six reviews from Netflix, they're 84% accurate in identifying a unique individual. And if they know the date of one of those reviews, then they can guess which individual that is with 99% accuracy. And that's not to say that Netflix um, is Big Brother per se, but just the amount of data that's out there is making it increasingly likely to piece together from anonymous data and be able to identify uh, who individuals are. 
Can you talk to us a little bit about how medium-sized companies can look at using data more powerfully in their firms to empower their decision-making? Absolutely. So uh, there, there are a couple different ways that we use uh, big data. You've got, um, you've got sort of what, what tends to fall in the category of business intelligence, which is looking at past historical transactions and understanding where your, co- where your company is. Uh, you've also got things in the middle where you're understanding your customers better. So market segmentation, clustering, and so forth. And then you've got the predictive analytics. With, with this is essentially trying to anticipate, you know, forecasting what's going to happen in the future. Um, so for, for a medium-sized business uh, that takes transactional data, and you see someone came in your store uh, you know, a month ago and made a purchase, that's, that's information. But if you, if you know that same customer came into your store um, every month for the last 12 months uh, but hasn't been in your store for the last two or three months, you might infer that that's a customer you're about to lose. Uh, you know, a, practice, a practical example would be a dental practice. You know, they recommend that you come back for your cleaning every six months. Um, so it's not hard for us to look in dental practice records and identify customers who haven't been to the practice in, say, 9 to 12 months and say, here's a sales list. Here's a list of people that you need to call first. And it, knowing that these people may be customers you're about to lose and anticipate this is going to be um, where you need to start in terms of uh, trying to bring people back into the business. Um, so there's that. There, there's a certain amount of data that even uh, medium-sized companies, if they begin capturing that data, that transactional data, there are a number of ways you can look at that and begin to say um, what infer different business practices. Again, whether it's creating lead lists of potential lost customers, better planning inventory, uh, better planning staffing, and so forth. So let me just go take you back a second. Repeat those different kinds of analyses that you you said market segmentation, business intelligence, predictive an, um, analytics. Give give us those big um, blocks again of different Absolutely. kinds of of, uh, so the, of analysis. The first is sort of that business intelligence uh, area where it's more of historical data. So so what has been happening uh, in our in our company, uh, and so from think from this type of information you can you can infer information like seasonality. We tend to do better in the first quarter, fourth quarter. A lot of the historical information. Business owners with their finger on the pulse of the business are going to know a lot of these uh, intuitively. And so there's going to be a sense of feeling like, well, I know my business really well. I've run it for 30 years. I know I know who's ordering what and so forth. The challenge, however, comes when you transition from a single store to a franchise model or from one store to 10 or or if you open up an Internet presence. Or, you uh, know, in many you, cases with CEOs, when you when you have to bring in a successor, right? And, and yeah, and there's no, uh, the business intelligence is all in the, the CEO's head and that's not very helpful. Absolutely. And so, so the more that you can, you can put, um, weight nets out there, if you will, to capture that historical data, um, you can use that now and you can use that in the future in terms of analyzing, um, useful tips for your business. So that first bucket I mentioned is really the historical side of things. Uh, that second bucket is really in, in more in the present, if you will, understanding who your customers are. Uh, how they behave and how they act. Uh, so this is where we get market segmentation. Um, you know, typically, if if I ask a customer how much is, or if I ask one of our clients how much is a new customer worth to you, um, the the typical response is going to be it depends. And so in that it depends answer is where you often get your market segmentation. And normally we'll hear them describe different types of customers. Well, this customer buys once a year, or this bus customer's high volume, low margin, low margin, high volume. This customer has specific needs and so forth. So taking your data, you can begin to look at what type of customers do we have. So there's the 
sort of the qualitative approach based on your just intuition of the business. Uh, this could be surveys with uh, people in the market, uh, or you could take a quantitative approach. And this is where we worked with one of our clients that had about a million customers. And, and that's and this is a medium to large business, but uh, through that process, we use a mathematical formula to create clusters or market segments, if you will, but essentially to tell them, these are your different types of buyers, and you should communicate differently with each of them, and you should spend different amounts of money to uh, on your marketing to capture uh, each of these customer bases. Work styles and the way people work together is also changing. Mary Don Peters of Gorby Peters & Associates was on the show with uh, Teresa Hargrave from the Women Presidents Organization back in April. And she shared some of the great things about how changes in the way her company is doing business are allowing her to work effectively with millennials and give them the freedom that they need to do their best work. And then don't you find that genius also is more efficient too? Like when you're, you know, when you're really in your genius, you know, what would normally take eight hours, sometimes you can get done in half an hour. So now the millennials call it power focusing. Um, the youngest is in college, and he's in computer programming. This is your your son? Yes. Okay. One of my sons. Um, he's in computer programming, and it used to drive me crazy until millennials started coming into my workforce. But as we have different hours in our office, most people arrive at 930 because you cannot get a millennial out of bed, and our office is also in the perimeter area, so traffic is not optimal. <laughs> it starts at 11.30, but for some, one in particular, it starts even later than that, because you have to find the hours where biologically they can power focus. And for some people, that would be in chunks of time in the morning. That's me, mm -hmm. probably uh, you guys, since you were up early this morning, but you get a millennial who needs to get up a little later because they're just cramming their genius ideas into either a program or they're writing something or they're deep in something else. Sometimes they have to do that at night when it's dead quiet. And what I've learned is they do it with really weird to me, weird, things going on. They may have music playing the same song over and over with headphones on. Why are they doing that? Because it calms their brain down so they can get to that still quiet part where genius actually lives. And it's amazing to watch them work. And I think the reason they're doing that is because the world that they grew up in and that our producer probably now lives in. There's flashing lights and things coming in and tweets and texts and all kinds of stuff coming from so many directions. They do put that noise in, but they use it almost like a, a white sound in the background so that they can focus. I like it to be just plain quiet. Me too. <laughs> Me too. People in general, in particular women, are finding ways to balance life and work that just weren't possible before. And with the flexibility that's coming with the workforce to serve millennials, non-millennials are also finding more freedom and balance in their personal and work lives. This creates many benefits, but 
one that it creates is more opportunity for women to thrive in higher level positions in companies. Mary Don has built several companies to over a million dollars, which is rare for women in large part because of the challenges of balancing family and career. And she offers some insights on how she balanced her family life with her success in business. So let's continue listening to the interview with Mary Don. I'd love to bring Mary Don in on this the answer to this, because Mary Dawn is one of our members. She's grown her business. She's grown several businesses to be above a million dollars. And I'd love to hear you weigh in on that, Mary Dawn, of what you feel as if the sacrifices were for you personally to do that. Sure. You realize that your free time is not really free time. You have to schedule so tightly to keep all the balls in the air. And so oftentimes the last thing on the list, the thing that is sacrificed first is you in your time. And especially when your children are small. You you have have, kids? Oh, I do. How many kids do you have? I have a blended family of three sons. And uh, the youngest is my birth child. They're all my love children, and uh, we have grown as a family. The oldest child is what people in the old days used to refer to as a special education child, and the special education that came was my special education in learning about love and simplicity and just such a beautiful character that I learn every day from. But to give you a specific example of how crazy your life can be as you are putting together your business and your family and trying to make it all work, what I would say the common denominator of our group and most of the incredibly successful women entrepreneurs is not just focus but a scary reserve of energy, Mm. emotional and physical, so that when life gives you gale force winds, you somehow find the strength and the energy to get it up, pick it up, and keep moving and moving forward. Um, Whether it is Deciding that you're going to miss your child's um, little Halloween. How could you possibly miss Halloween for a little toddler? Mm -hmm. So I decided I wasn't going to miss it. I was going to take them with me to a very large business meeting. Uh, So I, uh, I was in a very nice hotel in Kansas City, Missouri. This has been... Um, probably 18 years ago, and he's dressed as Buzz Lightyear. (laughs) And so from the concierge to the front desk to the the fellow that hands towels out in the gym, they were all ready to greet Buzz Lightyear with some specially selected candy from mom. And we did trick-or-treating in the (laughs) Ritz-Carlton in Kansas City, Missouri. Because I wasn't going to miss it. So I just had to figure out what that workaround was. And 
um, decide that even if it meant that I'd have to get up earlier and go to bed later, there were parts of my child and my children's lives that I wasn't going to miss. And being there as the elderly grow even more infirm. You can have priorities or excuses, or you, but you're not going to have both at the same time. Mm. And so that's what I did. I made my priorities, and my personal failing probably is in not carving out enough time for me to be um, me. And even today, we laughed before we started the show. Did you do your meditation? Did you do your meditation? <laughs> today, I get up between 4.30 and quarter to 5 so that I begin my day with meditation and reflection to be able to have the wisdom and strength and serenity and focus to just get all the important stuff I need to get done in this day for so many people. And it worked. A little more on this flexibility thing, because it can't be overstated how important it is to our business and work environment going into the future. Let's listen to Nicole Siokas of MomCorps and what she had to say about people's newfound desire for flexibility in the workplace. Well, it's very timely that you would have us on because we actually just released a survey that we do every other year on workplace flexibility, and uh, we released it typically around Labor Day. Uh, and one of the biggest trends that we're seeing is that uh, 75% of the folks that we surveyed said that um, when they're looking for a job or whether they're looking to stay in a job, uh, workplace flexibility is high on their priority list. And the interesting thing, though, is that most people think, well, there's two things. One, people think that workplace flexibility means part-time work, which is not necessarily the case. And the second thing is most people think that it pertains mostly to women. And in our survey, what we found is workplace flexibility is just as important to men as it is to women. So that's one of the interesting things that we found that we're seeing. The other thing is, is that people who um, took part in our survey said, you know what, flexibility is just as important for people who have kids as it is for people who don't have kids. And one of the trends that we're seeing is, you know, and there's always a lot of talk, obviously, around millennials and things like that. And as they move up, and it's interesting, I read an article on Forbes recently that talked about um, 30, about 37% of the workforce now, the management side of the workforce is millennials. And those are the folks kind of driving the behavior around workplace flexibility and demanding it a little bit more. And it isn't necessarily because they have kids. It's also because they have other interests outside of work. Um, and so for us, what we see is we see a lot of folks who want flexibility, maybe because they have kids and they need a reduced schedule. But we have folks that come to us and say, I don't want to be on the road anymore. I got to get off the road. I'm a consultant. I'm gone three to four weeks out of the month. Or, you know what? I live in Alpharetta and I'm commuting all the way down to the airport. I don't want that kind of commute. I need more flexibility. Um, or you know what? I don't want to be an employee. I like to be a freelance. I like to be a consultant. I like to work different jobs all the time. So the, those are the trends that we're seeing. So for us, we define flexibility in terms of time, place, and duration, which are some of the things I just described. So that's it for our look back at this year. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for being a part of the CEO exclusive community. I'm really looking forward to continuing to share trends next year. 
as well as proven business strategies as we move forward in 2016. Have a happy new year from everybody on the CEO exclusive team. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at anonaenterprises.com.